Lord, we just thank you for your word. I thank you for each person here and just how you want to take your word and apply it by the spirit of God to each one of our hearts. And so, Lord, we just come and present ourselves to you this morning, praying that you would speak to our hearts, that you would give us ears to hear, that you give us eyes to see the things that are in your word. And we ask your blessing upon this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, yeah, sweet, good, good to jump back into one of the gospel, one of the four gospel accounts. And sometimes, you know, people wonder, what is the purpose of having four gospels? Have you ever wondered that? You're like, okay, well, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, in a lot of ways, are, are so similar. What, what's the purpose of having four gospels? Well, I would say this, you know, of course, each one has uh, unique details about it, but lots of there's lots of things that are retold in the various gospels. But it's kind of like this. I, I was thinking about it. it's kind of like taking family portraits. You know, like why do you take more than one family portrait? Why not just have one portrait and that's good enough for all time? You know, doesn't that one family portrait capture the essence of your family? And we know no, that's not that's not true. You you know you wouldn't think like that. You have family portraits over the years to capture the essence of your family, and one isn't better than the other. Maybe there's a family portrait that hangs in your house that highlights when the kids were little. Then there's that embarrassing one where everyone, all the kids, are in their awkward stage, and nobody wishes that family picture was ever taken, but it hangs there. I actually know someone in my house who went to their parents' house and destroyed a lot of those photos from a certain time in their life when they didn't want those pictures to have any record. Um, you know, so as a family grows, then there's, there's marriages, there's, there's grandkids, and family photos, we have lots of them because they capture the essence of the family. It would be terrible to just have one. And I would say the same principle is true of Jesus. Think about this. He's too good for the Holy Spirit just to paint one picture, just to give us one portrait, one gospel. And so the beauty of having four gospels is that the nuance of each helps us grasp in a different way the the beauty and the essence of Jesus and his gospel message. Like Matthew, the gospel of Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews, And he tells us about Jesus and he takes a lot of time to connect the story of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus to Old Testament prophecies. In fact, uh, the the gospel of Matthew is a gospel. That's for me. Just tell him I'm busy right now. Uh, The gospel of Matthew is really helpful for a Jewish person to to grasp uh, the story of Jesus. Mark, when you turn to Mark's gospel, Mark has a Roman audience in mind. And with many accounts, he tells about the power of Jesus. The power of Jesus over sickness, over disease, over nature, over demonic powers. And Mark presents Jesus as the servant of all. He's that he's a servant, but that he is not powerless. And the Romans needed to see that. That he was the servant of God, but he used his power to serve people. Then there's John's gospel. John's gospel focuses in on the deity of Jesus. And John tells us about many signs that Jesus did to demonstrate that he is the son of God. And then we have Luke's gospel to which we're turning this morning. The doctor, the physician, Luke, 
He's the only New Testament writer who is not Jewish. Luke was a Gentile. And his gospel takes into account uh, the thinking of a Greek person, of Greek culture, the Greek mind. The Greeks were interested in the study of man. You know, they were the founder of the Olympics. They liked the idea of the perfect man. What is the perfect man? They, they loved the mind and how the mind of a human being could work and uh, philosophy and they worship the human physique. Well, Luke focuses in on the humanity of Jesus and he presents him as the Son of Man. This is the perfect man. In fact, take your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 19. Would you go to Luke 19 for a second? And if you got a pen, I want you to underline this verse. It's Luke chapter 19, verse 10. And maybe you even want to mark in the margins of your Bible that this verse is the theme verse of the Gospel of Luke. It says this in Luke 19.10, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. You can see right there in that theme, in that verse, the theme of the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is the perfect man. Jesus is the Son of Man, but his existence is, And his coming was not a a self-serving pursuit of physical or personal gratification or fulfillment through his own personal experiences or his accomplishments or the adventures that he was going to have in life. The perfect man, the son of man, listen to this, did not come for himself. He came for the lost. He came to seek and save the lost. And that is the theme of Luke's gospel. So I would just say this, you know, four gospels, praise God, don't you think? Man, I'm so grateful that we have four gospel accounts, that the Lord has blessed us with these four gospels that paint for us a portrait, a picture of Jesus. And the gospels are magnificent works of art about the most wonderfully magnificent person who ever walked on the face of the earth, the Lord Jesus. And Luke opens his gospel, his volume, by saying that the life of Jesus, the ministry of Jesus, is actually so important that before him, many other people had already written accounts of Jesus, which is kind of shocking that there were many books about Jesus already, which is interesting to consider. Many books written about him, about the things that he did, the person that he was. We actually know the names of some of them, like there's the gospel of Thomas. There's the gospel of Hebrews. There's what's called the gospel of Judas. Many books were written before Luke's account. And, and, but what's interesting is this, is that the Holy Spirit did not see fit to include them into what we call the canon of scripture. Our Bible is called the canon of scripture, not, not Canon, like is in a pirate ship kind of canon, in that sense. But canon, I'm going to put a definition for you up on the screen. Canon in this sense. A collection of sacred books that are considered genuine. That's what the word canon means when we speak of the canon of Scripture. So this is a collection of books that the Holy Spirit has preserved, and they are considered genuine. And from the Bible, the Lord sought to see fit that there would be other counts excluded, not included in the canon of Scripture, excluded from our Bible because they are not genuine or because they include lots of myths about Jesus, lots of legends about Jesus. 
you know, when you think about the gospel accounts, it's really, you know, 2,000 years for us removed from the time Jesus was on the face of the earth. It's, it's hard for us to truly comprehend and grasp what was happening in the land of Israel when John the Baptist's ministry started and when Jesus came on the scene and began to preach the kingdom of God and perform the things that he was doing. Jesus' life and ministry, like it didn't happen in a corner church. It wasn't like in the little corner of Galilee and people didn't know about it. It wasn't like a phenomenon in just one area of the land of Israel. Oh, just, you know, kind of a touchdown in Jerusalem. And some people knew about what Jesus was doing. And some people sort of heard about John and, and they didn't really, no, listen, Jesus rocked a nation to its core. Do you realize that when you read the gospels? Jesus turned the world upside down. When John the Baptist appeared and began to preach that we needed to be prepared for his coming, it was like the nation got rocked. Families were rocked. Everyone in the land of Israel knew about Jesus, knew about what was being preached. Everyone heard the rumors of the miraculous stories. Thousands would travel. That's what the Gospels accounts tell us. Thousands would travel to hear Jesus preach one message and bring a sick person in their family with the hope that they would be healed. Even when we turn to the book of Acts, the book of Acts tells us that the early disciples, the early church, were referred to as the men who turned the world, what? Upside down. Jesus rocked the nation of Israel. He turned a nation upside down, or we might say he turned it right side up. So in terms of documenting who Jesus was, what Jesus did, there were many who did it. That's what Luke says. Many people wrote about Jesus. But many of those writers blurred the lines between truth and reality. They blurred the lines between myth and legend of Jesus, as you can imagine. I mean, you just know how rumors float around a community or how stories grow and are told. And it's like, well, what is the truth of who this Jesus is? And the Holy Spirit excluded many of these accounts from the canon of Scripture because the life and times, listen to this, the life and times of Jesus is not myth or legend. It's not stories and rumors, okay? Your faith, listen to this, church, your faith is not mythical. It is not fictitious. Christianity is not based on legend. Your faith is based on on facts. Your faith and your trust in Christ Jesus is based in facts. Your faith is rooted in facts about a real person, the king of the Jews, Matthew said. The servant of God, Mark said. The son of man, said Luke. The son of God, said John. And that is the beauty of the gospels, church. They are factual portraits of Jesus. See, you will not get wrong ideas about Jesus if you just stay in the Gospels. You won't. You won't get wrong ideas and concepts of Jesus because of the biblical gospel, gospel accounts because they are factual. And when you build your faith and your life on the, on the truths of God's word, that is a firm foundation. It is tangible faith built on facts. It's more sure than anything in the universe. Isn't that awesome? And some people love to criticize the Bible. They say, wow, we don't know. You know, can it be trusted? We don't know what's truth and what's fiction. 
We don't know what's changed and what's been lost. They don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> That's what they don't know. They don't know what they're talking about. The fiction and the myth about Jesus was excluded from the word of God. And the facts were retained. And so this is so good. Listen to just how Luke, turn with me again to Luke chapter 1. And, and hear what I am saying to you right from the scroll of the physician himself, Dr. Luke. Verse 1, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely, closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, and if you have a pen, you should underline verse four, which says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. Isn't this awesome? Luke says, I want you to know with certainty. This is things that I have researched. I have talked to the eyewitnesses, to those who were from the beginning, the ministers of the word, and there have been many accounts, but I have documented this one. And he writes to this man here, we don't know who it is, Theophilus. Don't know who this is. May have been a Roman patron uh, who paid for Luke's education to become a, a physician. He may have been, I, I imagine, an early church Christian, maybe who was supporting the church or supporting the missionary work of Luke and and Paul, who himself was a follower of Jesus. But the interesting thing is his name, Theophilus, which is a compound name of two Greek words. I'm going to chuck it up on the screen for you. It's the words theos, which means God, and phileo, love. So the name Theophilus means lover of God. So Luke is writing to lover of God. So maybe this you know, book is addressed to a Roman patron, a individual citizen who's funded and financed Luke to do all the research, or maybe it's just addressed to lovers of God everywhere, those who love God. You love God? You love the Lord? You love Jesus, church? Then know this. The gospel of Luke is a well-researched document by a highly educated man who interviewed those who were eyewitnesses of the things that were from the very beginning. There is no myth and there is no legend in the book of Luke. None of it is incorporated into his account. He wrote to lovers of God everywhere so that they might know the certainty of the things which they have been taught. And I like that because it's like we live in times of uncertainty, don't we? Like, wow, what's going on, Lord, in the world? What's going on here and what's going on there? And when there are times of uncertainty, when you can have something of which you can be certain, that is a great source of comfort, isn't it? Now it says this in verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. 
So Luke gives us a time frame. It's during the days of Herod. Uh, the, during the rule of Herod, I would say, you know, for Israel, it's kind of like that combination of the best of times and the worst of times. Herod was a brilliant architect, king, leader. In fact, even today, <laughs> they're unearthing things that he has built. I mean, you've been to, some of you that have been to Israel, been to Masada and different places. Herod was a, an amazing, brilliant architect whose projects uh, remain this day to be amazing feats in the land of Israel. But there was also a saying about, his, about this Herod, King Herod, that it was safer to be his pet pig than to be a member in his family. <laughs> he famously would kill his sons with the slightest of suspicion or inkling that they would be any threat to his rule. I mean, he went through like nine or ten wives and he would just kill wife after wife. He was like totally a, a paranoid individual. He was brutal and he was benevolent. When times were tough, he would do something actually in the land of Israel that I think our government could learn from. Imagine this. He would lower taxes during tough times. Can you imagine? What a thought, eh? You know, and the economy needs just a push start or something like that. Lower taxes, not raise taxes. Well, that's exactly what Herod would do. He would even redirect gold from his building projects into the economy to keep the nation running when there were times that were tough. But at the same time, it was better to be a pig in his house than a member in his family. And history tells us this about him, that he was both a Jew and an Edomite. He was a descendant of Jacob and he was a descendant of Esau. And so he was not a true heir to the throne of Israel. He was uh, placed there by Rome. He was not of the tribe of Judah or the family line of David, to whom, as we've seen, as we've been in First and Second Samuel recently, the throne of Israel was promised to the descendants of David forever. And Herod was not of the line of David. In fact, the people of Israel viewed him as a usurper. They, they saw his position of power as illegitimate and illegal in their minds. And in fact, the, the period between, uh, well, in, in the waiting, well, let me just back up here a little bit. In fact, the, the period between the close of the last book of the Old Testament, which is, can you remember? What is it? Malachi, that's right. Malachi closes our Old Testament. Until we read the gospel accounts, where Herod is in power, there was a period of 400 years, which is referred to as the intertestamental period. It, it mirrors 400 years of slavery in Egypt. It was a 400-year period of silence where the children of Israel did not hear from the Lord. It wasn't that there wasn't miracles at that time. It wasn't that God didn't work on behalf of the children of Israel during those 400 years. But the issue was that there were 400 years of silence from Malachi until what we're about to read here. No prophets. No word from the Lord. No thus saith the Lord. No the word of the Lord came to Jonah. No, no the word of the Lord came to Hosea or the word of the Lord came to Habakkuk. The heavens were silent for 400 years. And before the silence began, what is interesting as we turn to the gospel accounts is that God had spoken 
to Daniel before the 400 years of silence had begun. In Daniel chapter 9, the angel Gabriel appeared in answer to Daniel's prayer. And, and Gabriel told Daniel that from the time that the commission went forth from Cyrus to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and the people came back from captivity in the land of Babylon, rebuilt Jerusalem, rebuilt the temple. From, from that order, 483 years would pass and then would be the coming of the Son of Man. And Jerusalem was rebuilt. Israel had a timeline in Daniel chapter 9. Nevertheless, the silence from God was very difficult for them to endure. Prophets followed Daniel, but the last prophet was Malachi. They were waiting for the coming of the Son of Man. And Malachi, in his preaching and his prophecies, echoed the words of Isaiah. Look at Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. It'll be on your screen. It says this. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The prophecy of Isaiah was this, that a way was to be prepared for the coming of who? The Lord, Yahweh. Malachi built upon this. Malachi chapter 3 verse 1. Malachi prophesied this. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before who, church? Before me, the text says. He will prepare the way before me and the Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Then Malachi closed his prophetic account with these words. Malachi chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Isaiah and Malachi prophesied the coming of the Lord. And he said they both said this, that the Lord would come. And what would happen beforehand is that one would come in the pattern of Elijah. And he would come and preach this message in answer to these, in fulfillment of these prophecies. And he would preach before the coming of the Lord. The second Elijah one who had character like Elijah. And then you know who would come afterwards? Yahweh would come. Yahweh himself, which I would just say to you is this, is just further evidence to the fact that Jesus is Yahweh. That Jesus is Lord. That's what we confess with our mouths. We confess Jesus is Lord. We believe in our hearts that God raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Paul said this, it's with our heart that we believe and are justified and it is with our mouths that we confess and are saved. So Luke tells us that in the days of Herod, there was a righteous couple. Their names were Zechariah and Elizabeth. They believed in the Lord. They sought to live according to God's word. They sought to live righteous lives according to his law. Both of them were of the family line of Aaron. Both Levitical, both of the 
tribes of priests and of that descent. And before God, Luke says they were righteous and blameless, but there was an issue for this couple. As wonderful as they were, they were older and they had no children. It seemed that Elizabeth was barren and the two of them had sought God for a child, prayed, sought the Lord year after year, month after month, day after day, and, and nothing. And for Jews, I mean, a, a fruitful womb is the sign of God's blessing. And Elizabeth was barren, and there were likely lots of people who looked at Zechariah and Elizabeth and thought, well, you know, they're a nice couple. There's probably something going on behind closed doors, you know. That guy, that woman. There's got to be, you know, some secret sin. Something is off with those two. I mean, they got all the appearance of everything right. They appear righteous, but why would they have no children? It was an incredibly disgraceful thing to be barren in that culture. And for the children of Israel, 400 years of silence, their people had endured. And though Zechariah and Elizabeth were righteous and blameless, when they lifted their voice in prayer to God for a child like the entire nation was experiencing, the heavens were brass. No answer. And it was incredibly painful. As a priest, Zechariah would work their land, farm their family property, provide for their house, probably lived in a village somewhere outside of Jerusalem. And then two weeks a year, he would be on duty. Just two weeks a year. And I imagine it was probably for him the highlight of his year that for two weeks he would get to go and serve at the temple, to go to the house of the Lord and to participate in the activities of worship and serving God and serving God's people. And he did so as his father had done before him and his father before him in the tradition of their people, worshiping Yahweh like their fathers before them. And Zechariah hung his hopes on the coming of one who would wipe away the tears from their eyes and lift the people of Israel from disgrace with the coming of his kingdom. Now let's check out what happens in verse 8. Now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So if a, if a priest, while they were serving on duty, was blessed by God's good grace to be chosen by lot, imagine this, chosen by lot, to enter the temple of the Lord, he would get the opportunity to pray before the altar of incense and burn incense to the Lord. And this was a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Many priests never got this chance. The lot never fell in their favor. They, were, they had their two weeks on duty, and they just never got the opportunity. And with the task of presenting prayers, Zechariah would go into the holy place, and he'd burn that incense. He'd spend an hour in prayer with the Lord, um, offering prayers on behalf of the children of Israel, and then when he was done, he would come out. There would be worshipers and those praying outside the holy place. And he would come out 
to those who were participating with him in prayer, waiting for him, and he would pronounce over them the priestly blessing. Numbers chapter 6. He would say this, raise his hands over them, and he would say, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. And Zechariah would bless them by putting the name of the Lord on the people. And so this opportunity for him, what I want you to see is this. Is this, was not a, this was a once in a lifetime chance. Once in a lifetime opportunity of service to the Lord. It wasn't an everyday thing. This was a dream being fulfilled to get to go in and do what he was doing. And he'd never had any guarantee that it was going to come to pass. But the day came. The Lord, the lot falls according to the Lord's direction. And he was chosen. And there he stood offering his prayers. And we read in chapter, uh, verse 11. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. I'll bet. Fear fell upon him. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Wow, those sound like very familiar words from Isaiah and Malachi, don't they? So here's Zechariah. Goes in, he's in the holy place, doing his thing. He's alone, offering prayers for the children of Israel, the people of Israel. Praying, we get the sense for his own life and his own a wife. And, and suddenly, he's not alone. Which is kind of freaky, you know, in a sense. In a sense, but I would say this. Doesn't this always happen to you and I in prayer? Do you go to prayer? I, you know, I've never seen an angel that I know of. But what I have experienced is this, and what I know that you have experienced is this, that when you seek the Lord in prayer, you will always discover this every single time. You are not alone. You're not alone. That you and I have a father, and that he loves us as his child. And when we go to him in the place of prayer, he reminds us of that. He reminds us, son, daughter, don't you know, I sent my son to seek and to save the lost. Jesus came to save you. And his spirit lives in us. And when you go to the place of prayer, this is what you discover. This is what you experience. You find out you are not alone. I mean, if you're here this morning with us or you're watching online and you don't know Jesus and you don't know the place of prayer, I have to tell you, the place of prayer is a wonderful place. Because when you go to the Father in the name of Jesus, the Father assures you of his presence and his peace. Zechariah was not alone. You're not alone. But what he did not expect 
was the appearance of an angel. And we haven't read this yet, but I'm going to just, uh, spoiler alert, okay? Spoiler alert, this angel actually declares what his name is to Zechariah. It was Gabriel, the angel Gabriel. This is a very, very rare instance when the angel identifies himself by name. And, and those who love the word of God, those who are students of the Bible, have to catch the significance of Gabriel's appearing because the last time was all those years before and he appeared to, do you remember? Daniel. Gabriel appeared to Daniel. That account is recorded in Daniel chapter 9. And Daniel like Zechariah, was seeking God. This is what Daniel chapter 9 tells us. He was seeking God in the place of prayer for the people of Israel. Same, same situation. Not in the temple. Not in the temple, but same situation. Same sort of prayer. This is a repetition of biblical pattern. And God sent Gabriel to share an answer to Daniel when Daniel sought the Lord in prayer for his people. And Gabriel told Daniel this. Remember? Let's just remember this for a minute. Daniel 9. He said, Daniel, from the time that the order goes out for the rebuild, 483 years will pass, 69 sevens, and the Messiah will come, Daniel. He will come. And now, Gabriel appears, and he appears to Zechariah. Now, Israel... They returned to the land of Israel from exile some, sometime between, you know, 536 and 445 B.C. And Gabriel's appearance to Daniel, and from the time that uh, Cyrus gave the command, nearly 483 years had passed. The appearance of Gabriel, and this, what Luke is telling us, is so important because it has great consequence. It's telling us, the scripture is telling us, that the appearing of him who is the desire of nations is at hand. Naturally, you know, you go into a place of prayer, in that holy place, and you discover you're not alone, you're going to be a little bit freaked out, you know. There he is all by himself. And Zechariah was not just troubled, but the text tells us, Luke tells us, fear fell upon him. And Gabriel said to him, don't be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. This is one of the at least 366 times in the scripture that the command is given. Do not fear or be afraid. We know this. It's one for uh, every day of the year. And actually, I'm going to add this, including the leap year, 366. Because God's people need to know that he is sovereign in his power. And those that are like Theophilus, lovers of God, who put their hope in Christ Jesus, never need to be afraid, church. Amen? Gabriel then told Zechariah that not only had God heard his prayer, but that Elizabeth was going to be with child and have a son who was to be named John. He's very specific. Name, name him John. You know the name John means this. Jehovah is a gracious giver. That's what the name John means. Jehovah is a gracious giver. And it makes me think, you know, maybe you've been praying for something. Maybe that's gone on for years. 
Maybe you've been praying for a situation or for a person or for the salvation of a loved one. And you've prayed and you've prayed and you've prayed for years. And the prayer has gone unanswered to this point. You pray and you pray. And it's like, man, I feel like an Israelite in the intertestamental period. The heavens are brass. You feel like that prayer for that person or that situation has maybe become like, feels like it's a waste of time or that you've lost hope. Like Zechariah and Elizabeth, you could say, you know, I think the window of opportunity for this to be fulfilled is like come and gone. But let me remind you today what the word of God says by the spirit of God. Jehovah is a gracious giver, church. Zechariah and Elizabeth had no idea that their prayers and that the effect of those prayers was so much bigger and grander in the plan of God than they could have ever imagined. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And so faithful prayer warrior, do not stop. Do not stop going to the throne of grace because Jehovah is a gracious giver. Father is a gracious giver and your prayers by God's grace are going to give birth. The birth pangs will come. Trust your father. And John's birth and the anticipation of it would be, the angel says, an incredible source of joy. Great joy, he says. He himself, John, would be great and John would be a source of great joy, which is Quite the announcement to his birth, isn't it? It's like, this is incredibly unique, this man in history. Gabriel says he's to be raised without wine. He's going to grow up under the Nazarite rite, like Samson, okay? Catch that. This is just like Samson. He's not to eat or drink of the vine. He would be filled of the Spirit in a very unique way that is not seen in Scripture prior to this, even in the womb John would be filled with the Holy Spirit. Luke in his gospel, what's awesome about Luke's gospel, we'll we'll see this in the weeks to come, Luke puts a lot of emphasis on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And he also puts a lot of emphasis on joy. And it's like the ministry of the Holy Spirit and your experience of joy, they, they go hand in hand in your life. Joy is associated with the ministry of the Spirit, the Spirit. And your experience of joy in the Lord is is connected to the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. So I would just tell you this, like just as by way of reminder, if your faith is joyless, then you need the Spirit of God to renew the joy of the Lord in you. You need to experience his filling and his baptizing again. He is a source of joy and John's ministry would be distinctly and evidently empowered by the Spirit of God, and there would be joy associated with it. Now check out verse 16. I'm just going to go to verse 25 this morning. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. So again, just like the prophecy of Isaiah and Malachi, Gabriel says this, John is going to go before Yahweh himself, before the Lord. He will be a forerunner, 
a preparer of the people of God for the coming of Yahweh. And and it's all so fantastic in the ears of Zechariah that it was hard for him to believe, as you can imagine. Look at verse 18. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. You know, I... One of the things I love about scripture is these people because it's just like they resonate to our own hearts and lives. It's like so often God does something and we just give the wrong response. You know, we ask the wrong question when God is at work and it's like, well, I don't understand what you're doing. How's that going to work? You know, I, I think I was thinking about this. You know, when we interpret something as bad, when we, when we like experience something in life and we go, it's bad, you know, this happens or that happens or sickness comes or this tragedy comes or this experience comes. Often as followers of the Lord, we're prone to ask this question, why? Why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why is this happening to me? Why is this going on? And in that instance, the right question is is always not why, but what for, Lord? What are you you wanting to do, Lord, and how can I participate with you in the midst of this, even though I don't like this? So the question in bad stuff is not why, but, but what for, Lord? We also do the same thing when something unbelievably good is promised. Like Zechariah has an amazing promise given to him. His wife is barren. He is told she's going to have a baby. And he doesn't ask why. He goes, how? That's impossible. That can't happen. How would that happen? I'm old. My wife is old. Like this is, those days have come and gone. How will that happen? And Zechariah gets hung up on the how. Have you seen my wife, Gabriel? Have you looked at the man that's standing in front of you? It's not going to happen, okay? But the point is here, nothing is impossible with God. How is not the problem? How is not the problem? The right question in this instance is why? Why? Why, Lord? Why are you promising to do this now when we're old? And the answer from the angel, your boy is going to be great. Your boy is going to be a source of joy. Your boy is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb. And the reason why the why question matters is because he is about to prepare the way for the coming of the Lord. How is not a problem. Because nothing is impossible with God. The answer to the why question is the exciting part. Now look at verse 19. Wrap up quick here. The angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Now this is pretty amazing. This is like an unbelievable consequence to unbelief. Zechariah would be mute unable to speak. It's going to go on for at least nine months here. At least. He's not home yet, so it's going on for a while. And 
What's amazing is, is remember what the priest was going to do? He was going to pray, he was going to seek Lord, and he was going to come out of the temple and outside there would be worshipers and prayer warriors waiting there. And what was he going to do? He was going to stand before the people and he was going to bless them. But now he'd be unable, unable to do that. Incredible sign to the children of Israel. Look at verse 21. The people were waiting for Zechariah. And they were wondering at his delay in the temple. It's like, hope that guy's not dead in there. You know, what has happened? Verse 22. When he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. He didn't have a whiteboard for the charades. I mean... They were just trying to figure it out as they go. As he, he didn't have Tammy there to do the sign language, nothing, you know. It's all, make it up as you go. Okay, verse 23. And when the time of his service was ended, he went to his home. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Isn't that beautiful? A woman who all her life had waited. It's actually one of the beautiful things in Luke's gospel. Luke's placed a lot of emphasis on women and the Lord's ministry to women and through women. And it starts with Elizabeth, one who had waited for a long time for God to work on her behalf. And she gets pregnant. And I mean, we know this. It's like kind of the general rule is how long when you're pregnant do you wait to keep it quiet? Three months, right? And then it's like, okay, we can let the cat out of the bag and share. We're, we're, we're past the zone of, you know, safety for this baby. But she waited five months. I mean, it was just, just blew her mind what God had done for her to take away her reproach among the people. And so we'll pause there this morning, but let me give you four applications, four applications from God's word this morning. First one is this. Do be a Theophilus. Do be a lover of God. The greatest commandment, Jesus said, is what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. I want to encourage you, just cultivate your love for the Lord. Cultivate your love for the Lord Jesus and for his word. Second is this. Do pray. Don't stop. Don't give up. All the questions of why and how, if it will become clear in time, the Lord is growing your heart of persistence in the place of prayer. And let me remind you, Jehovah is a gracious giver. And your time is not his time. Keep praying, whatever it is. Whatever it is, it's on your heart this morning. Continue to seek him. Thirdly, don't be afraid. Zechariah and Elizabeth, their names are interesting. Zechariah's name means remembered of Jehovah, and Elizabeth means worshiper of God. Look it. For those who worship God, the Lord remembers them. You never need to be afraid. The Lord is at work on your behalf. He remembers those who fear his name. And I take great confidence and hope in this. In the midst of the days and culture and time in which we live, and there's so much uncertainty and questions, church, do not fear. The Lord is sovereignly 
in control and seated upon his throne. And fourthly, do ask the right question. If it's bad stuff, the question is not why. The question is, what for? What is God doing in the midst of this? What is this for and how can I participate in And if it's good stuff, the question is not how. That's impossible. The question is why. Why now? What is the Lord about to do and how can I participate with him in that? 